0: Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. When you think of Christmas, what words would come to your mind when you think of Christmas these days? The, uh, the tree, Christmas cards, uh, Christmas carols. If you think of the first Christmas, the words that would come to your mind would be terror and fear. And panic and doubt and maybe, I hope, faith. We're in our third week of, of looking at what the first Christmas must have been like. We're looking at the 400 silent years, and we've actually worked our way closer and closer to the time when Jesus is born. We get to this final week here because uh, we want to understand the context of the first Christmas and see how the remnant, the, the few followers, of God, Jehovah, and they were living for this promise, the promised one, Messiah. We're going to look at their faith because I think the more we study this time period, the more we realize this is what the faith you and I need to have to have a remnant type of faith, what what we need to be looking for and what they uh, attach themselves to because there were different ways to make mistakes back then, and, and we don't want to make those as well when we say they were living by faith and what they were living for were some of the promises of God particularly they were looking for the messiah and what they had in mind when they when you say messiah is a promise that was made there's a number of covenants throughout the old testament and and one was made to David and that was during the camelot years i mean he was it was the glory days of israel when god, david was walking with god and he had just a tremendous relationship with god and he was he was a warrior and he he fixed things he he made things he made peace break out through settling right injustice and righteousness ruled because he was a warrior king but he was also uh, a poet he was also a worshiper even God himself says that David was a man after my own heart he he loved God he wrote so many of the psalms he was tender hearted and so when they talk about the promises that were made uh, to David, the Davidic covenant, it means they were, it was th- that the Messiah would actually be from David's descendants. It would be from the tribe of Judah. It would be from him, and it would be like him, a shepherd king. He would be a person, ultimately, look, here's what they're looking for. They want, they want there to be righteousness and justice that rules. That's what they want, righteousness and justice to rule. And that's where their hope was, that's what that's what they were looking forward to. When they we say the promised one or the promise, we say Messiah. We talk about that, one of David's heirs ruling. When you think of names of names of people in the first uh, Christmas story, who do you think of? You think of uh, you? you think of Jesus? <laughs> Put him, okay, and Mary, and Joseph, and the innkeeper. There was no innkeeper. If there's a single single name that defines the context of the birth of Jesus, it's the name Herod. And if there's a single word to to define King Herod the Great, it would be power. That's what he lived for. That's what he killed for. It was the accumulation of power. It is a life example of what a person looks like when they're willing to sell their soul for more power. That's what Herod, he was. he was born to be this way. He was born into a politically connected family, both his mother and his father, and they raised him well. They taught him around the, the table growing up. They said, you are going to be a world-class power broker and know these two rules, right? The first one is to keep your friends close and your enemies dead. And the second rule is to watch your back. Always watch your back. He was built for it. He was a, a big, you know, imposing individual, you know, and he used that, right? Think, think our president, LBJ, that used his, his size to intimidate people and, and, and to, you know, cause his way, to use his power that way. He had the personality for it. He was very competitive, and he was cruel. He was like most narcissists when he needed to be, right? He could be charming, to get what he wanted because it was the accumulation of more power. If you look in the, in the history books, you'll, it's hard to find somebody that has this dedication and this obsession with power, just wanting power. And if, there's, if there was ever a time where he had a latent ambition for more, the unused potential, it came out of him uncaged, with the death of his father. His father was poisoned by friends. They put something in his soup. And Herod snapped. Historians will say, this is one (laughs) he he went all in. He plotted the revenge of his father's death, and he did this right, revenge is best served cold. So he waited long enough, and then he had these men over to his, his own house for a big banquet and they were greeted at the door by assassins and never made it to the table. And with that, he, he, made it, he, he made this will to power, right? Nietzsche's will to power, he made it an addiction. And he would do anything that he needed to do. He would never expose himself to what his father had taught him, right? Keep your friends close and your enemies dead and watch your back. It cost his dad. He wasn't watching his back. So he learned from that lesson. So just give you an example, early in his career when he's put, it, put as the governor of, of the Galilean area, right, there were several bands of marauders that were Jewish in nature and they were causing trouble for Rome and Herod was overseeing that. And so he picks the most uh, celebrated leader of the most notorious gang and then, I mean, with, with a gleeful spirit like hunting foxes, you know, he, he tracks him into the hills and, and captures the man, brings him back to one of the major towns or cities, and then tortures him to death in the center of the city while everyone watches so as to send a message. And the message was sent, and it was received, and things calmed down in the Galilean area because Herod would do whatever it took to keep people in submission. He would do whatever it took to get more. If there was a special interest group that, that needed obliging, he would oblige them. He would do things and send things their way. That's great. Uh, he, he, he would kiss up to his the people over him. And when I say that, it's, it's mind-blowing. He built cities right, and stadiums for his boss. Cities and stadiums for his boss. He, he would uh, kill for power. He would lie, cheat, and, and do whatever is required for power. For, for power. He would bribe for power. He would marry for power. He, mar- he had 10 wives Just because it had political gain to him. It, had, it gave him um, more influence. Let me tell you one of them that's uh, especially important to us. Her name was Miriam. It was his favorite wife. Let's, let's give it that. She was apparently very attractive, but more important than her beauty was her lineage. Now, let's, let's remember maybe two weeks back, if you would, if you were here, uh, during the 400 silent years, this was a time of persecution to the Jewish people, and then there was this one, uh, I, I guess, uh, revolution that got independence for the Jews, and it was a pre- it was led by a priestly family, right, and the, from the tribe of Levi. Levi and one of the leaders there was named as Judah, and he was called the Macca- Judah the Maccabee, Judah the, the Hammer. Well, they end up, the whole family ends up being called Maccabees, or the Maccabean, right? So that was that group. Well, anyway, as time went by, this family, this family, it becomes royalty. They become the leaders, the, the judges, or the, the king of Israel at that time. And that's called the Hasmonean Dynasty, So, the Hasmonean dynasty goes back to, it's the same lineage uh, going all the way back to Judah Maccabees. Now, there's this one family with two children, and they are the only family left that actually has both royal lines going into them. They have a, a son and a daughter, and the daughter is Miriam. So, she is pure blood Hasmonean, and Herod marries her because she is. That's why he married her. He married her because now I'm in the royal family overseeing uh, the Jewish people. And what did he learn from his parents? Keep your friends close and your enemies dead. Watch your back. And so making sure that no one else would take his privileged place as uh, uh, the head at Hasmonean, he killed off every remnant in this family line so that only his family would be left. Kills them all. Has them all assassinated. Because, because he could. He wanted, to be, he wanted to be in that solo position of being able to lead in that context because it gave him power. And then to ensure that he would never be challenged and making sure that there would never, there'd never be an overthrow, he's never going to drink some of that soup with poison in it. Just three years before the time of Jesus being born, see how close we are to the manger? Three years before Jesus is born, Herod gets, I don't know, a tinge, a twinkle, a thought, an impression that someone in the Hasmonean family might want to take over. Now, if you're listening to me, everybody in the Hasmonean family is dead, except his wife and his two sons. (laughs) But power is thicker than blood. And so he has them killed. He kills his only two sons in this family, and he kills his wife as well to ensure, and that, by the, friend, by the way, friends, is the end of the Hazmodean dynasty. That is, he's crazy. I mean, he, he's, he's absolutely insane. He's intoxicated. He's possessed by power. He's paranoid. Although if everybody does hate you, then it's not really paranoia, right? It's, it's, abs- it's just facts. If everybody wants you dead, then... But anyway, you get the idea that he's never going to get snuck up on again. His friends are going to be close and his enemies are going to be dead. So now, I'm I'm trying to walk us into the moments before uh, Jesus is born. Months, maybe weeks, before we open our Bibles to the first chapter of Matthew and Luke, there's a town up on a hill three miles north of Nazareth, up on a hill. He looks down on Nazareth, I think. And there's a mild rebellion getting started again. And Herod is almost dead, but it doesn't matter. He squashes them and wants to make another example because it's been a while. And so this, this town, Zephorus, is taken over by a Roman legion, and anyone who can't be sold for profit is murdered, The bodies are piled up, and they burn the entire town to the ground. Does not exist. It's done. So if you can picture now, our little teenager Mary, who's hanging out her clothes, but inside her house, because the smoke is still coming, and the ashes are still falling from Zephorus, then you hear this. That's the climate, that's the context that she hears. And God sent an angel, Gabriel, to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, and a virgin who pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, "'Greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you.' And Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this must be. And the angel said to her, "'Do not be afraid, Mary.' For you have found favor in God, and you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. And look what it says. (laughs) This is not what it looks like if you think of the context. And he will be great and be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him a throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will never end. Well, of course, Mary says, well, how can this be? because I'm still a virgin, he says the power of uh, God's spirit will come over you and you will be conceived that way because nothing is impossible with God. And then Mary he says this, she's being asked permission and she says, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And the angel left her. That is Christmas faith. That's, that's the real faith that is required for a person to be a follower of Jesus Christ. I mean, we, you, you might have heard stories about, you know, what poor Mary must have gone through in the context of her reputation, you know, this cute, righteous, virgin girl. But now she could never explain what happened to her, and she lived with that shame for her whole life, that, that change in reputation. But have you, have you considered this? The abject fear and terror she must have felt as she goes to bed at night and she still sees the top of that mound glowing with hot coals, thinking that she will be the mother of the next king that would be a threat to Herod. This is, this is real faith. This is, the, this is independent of circumstances, whether there's a Herod in your life or not. This is one that says that that God is good when nothing else is. This is a faith that says that when you see bad things happen to good people all the time, everywhere, you still trust in God. Evil wins in your lifetime, but you're not, you're, that's not what you're putting your faith in. You do not understand, and you will never understand this. This is... Faith, this kind of faith, this is faith with fear. They make strange bedfellows, but they're attached at the hip. You, don't take fear out of this, or you miss the Christmas story, and you can't take faith out of it either. Now, now keep in mind, by the way, just the, what's happening in the big picture here. God is entrusting his plan not to Herod uh, or Caesar or Pharisees, Whatever we've studied up to this point, but, but who? This <laughs> God's plan, this humble little girl in a humble little town. Nazareth? You'll, if you read later in the Bible, someone will find out that Jesus is from Nazareth, and he'll say out loud, can anything good come from Nazareth? I mean, really? Humble girl from a humble town. You should see what God does with humble people. Moody said, the world has not seen what what God could do with a person whose heart is completely surrendered to him. Faith with fear. That's That's what Mary is living with right here. He still has promises to keep, God that is, and so he has to... Get the child is conceived in Nazareth, but he has to get the child born in Bethlehem because that's where David was from. And look what it says it says, O Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me, for me the one who will be a ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old and from ancient times. Another humble little town will be exalted. It will be a shepherd king all over again. God's keeping his promises. That's what he does. When you look at Matthew's gospel, you can see that he understands the context of this story, the first story, because there is plenty of terror and fear in his story. Matthew chapter 2, it it starts with, uh, you know the story, but it's it's the magi from the east, these wise men, astronomers, astrologers. They come in. And they, and they hear in dreams, they've heard that there's going to be a new king. And they come to Jerusalem. So I mean, think of the context of that. And right under Herod's nose, and they're asking around out loud to people, right, hey, we've come looking for the next king. And so we were wondering if you've seen the next king. We've heard he, like he's been long, the long-awaited king. And what would you do if you lived in Jerusalem and you were Jews? Like, hey, yeah, okay, sure, got to go. You know, we don't use that vocabulary around here. Shh, quiet. <laughs> Do you know? Are you from out of town? You must be from out of town. And so uh, they find out. They have a meeting, and, they find, out, and, they, and they, they find out where Jesus would be born. But look what's happening. Meanwhile, in Jerusalem, look at this passage. See how it's loaded with meaning now? Verse 3 of chapter 2. And when King Herod heard of this, he was disturbed. What else? And all of Jerusalem with him. Keep your friends close. Keep your enemies dead. It's not like he wouldn't kill everyone. And so that's why all of Jerusalem is disturbed. Because when Herod's angry, everyone is in, a, is in fear. Faith uh, with fear. The story goes on. The Magi, they follow the star into Bethlehem, and they, they worship the king. They give him extravagant presents of gold and frankincense and myrrh and and then they have a, a dream and they're told do not go back and tell Herod go home another way and so I mean if you can if you could just do this for a second could you just imagine um, what it would be like. For Mary and Joseph holding Jesus, he's maybe 15 months old or so, or a year to 15 months old, and they're walking him out. Hey, it was great having you guys. It's super great. Thanks for all the gifts. And they're waving goodbye. They tuck themselves in uh, to bed that night, and they're thinking, all is well. I mean, we're in God's hands. We're in God's will. Next verse, verse 13 says, And when the Magi had gone, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, and he yells at him and says, Get up, get up. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you to, for Herod is going to search for the child and kill him. And so they did. The next verse says, and they did. They got up and they took the child and the mother during the night, and they left. The idea is they just ran. They didn't pack. They ran. And and they stayed there until the death of Herod. And they did this because a, a promise was fulfilled that out of Egypt he would call his Savior. But I don't think it's a a far, it's not in the Bible, but I don't think it's a stretch of an imagination to realize that as they're leaving town and they're getting outside the city limits, the reason they're so afraid is because it says in verse 16 that Herod realized that he'd been outwitted, uh uh-oh, and became furious that the Magi had tricked him. And so he orders a troop of soldiers to go, and it says, to, to go into Bethlehem and the vicinities and to kill every single baby two years and younger that's a male. (laughs) He just kills everyone that could possibly be a king. And listen, again, he's an aged man with very few years left, so so this potential king is never going to be realized when Herod's alive, but that doesn't matter. doesn't matter. He had one of his favorite sons killed on his deathbed because the son was looking at him a little impatiently. You know, like, hey, you know, today, just had him killed. And could, could please, let's think about this real faith experience that she's going, that Mary and, and Joseph and the real family went through. They're leaving the town, and behind them, they can hear the people screaming. The parents, you, so many of you are parents. What would that be like? A one-year-old, a two-year-old, right? They're, they're, just, they're just so delightful and innocent for the most part during those times. Right. Your door gets crushed by these soldiers coming in like a wild SWAT team. Is it a boy or is it a girl? It's a boy. They stab him and leave. Not like you'd ever get an explanation. But Bethlehem and the vicinity is riled in grief. As it said, and Rachel will be weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted. That's real Christmas faith. It's independent of circumstances, independent of whether there's a Nero who appears to be in charge but it's not. That God is good when everything else is bad and bad things are happening to good people all the time, everywhere. Evil wins. And you still trust in the promises of God. You don't understand this, you never will live long enough to understand this. This is faith with fear. That's Christmas faith. That's a remnant faith. That's the faith you and I must have in this world that we live in now. You fast forward three, 30 years, and Jesus is, is, you can see why so many people are attaching themselves to the promise of the Messiah the david like messiah that will come and rule <laughs> why wouldn't you i mean it's not fault the disciples or anyone else uh, he turns water into wine he feeds thousands of people with a couple loaves and fishes and not just once but twice he heals people that are you know uh, paralyzed he gives sight to the blind he walks on water he calms the sea he calms the sea he can take over rome just by thinking of it He's giving great respect and dignity to those who are on the outcast, those who are on the fringe. And and the people are starting to realize the disciples are following, not just for, you know, his great teaching, but because they realize this, he's it. He's the one. And he's the one that can help rule with righteousness and conquer Rome, and we can be free to worship God again. Justice and peace. Justice and peace. That's all they want. And... (laughs) It, there's such a misunderstanding of, of what's happening. If you, if you look at even Palm Sunday, right, the week before uh, the crucifixion, Palm Sunday, that is called the triumphal entry. That's, that's a royal entry of a king coming into his town. And, and, so, and so no wonder people are, you know, Hosanna, Hosanna, and uh, the son of David, those sorts of things. While all this is happening, this, Jesus has been teaching, especially towards the end of his life, he's been teaching the Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. He tells them that he was going to be crucified. He, he was going to be tortured and crucified. On one occasion with the confrontation with Peter, right? Peter. He tells Peter, no, 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 listen, you, no, you're reading not that promise, this other promise that I'm coming as a ransom. And Peter says, there's no way you can do this. I'll stop it from happening. And what did Jesus say? You get behind me, Satan. On the night, on the night he was betrayed, the communion service, while they're all setting up dishes, okay, two of the brothers, James and John, have their mother negotiating for cabinet positions. That's how committed they were to this idea that he would be a reigning king. And Jesus said, Look, when we have a toast, it it won't be a victory toast. You you do not want to drink from this. It's the the cup of wrath. They don't don't see it. They they don't understand. Jesus said what was going on, but the people, um, they made up their mind about what God was supposed to do. And so they missed his, one of the major teachings. One of the last teachings he has in the book of Matthew, his, his last public teaching in the book of Matthew, Jesus quotes from the single most quoted chapter in the, of the Old Testament in the New Testament. Okay? It's, it's Psalm 110. It's quoted more uh, than any other chapter. And he says this. And th- by the way, th- we can learn so much from this one sentence. Jesus is talking about wh- what's going to happen especially in the context of resurrection. He says this, and then the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. One sentence, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. That one sentence, that's what you can, that's a promise that you can put your faith in. That that can define the object of what you're living for. That Right there is, is where you attach your hope. That sentence right there. It, it's worth spending some time with. Okay. The Lord says to my Lord, that's the Father is saying to Jesus, that's what he said. The Father says to the Son, and what does he say? Sit at my right hand. Now, people understood then. We probably don't now. That is a royal position of authority. The right hand. That's a position of power and a position of honor. And he says, and he look what he says: he says, sit. The father says to the son, sit at this place of authority and leadership. Don't stand up and do, just rule. Just by your words, rule. I'll, I'll place you there, and you'll be in charge. And it, it, that's his place, at his right hand. Sit there. And the next two words, right, sit to my right hand, until I... Boy, those two words are loaded with a doctrine of what's called sovereignty. Sovereignty means that God has a plan, and he has the power to pull off the plan. Okay, That's what it means. That's what sovereignty means. Until I. You sit at my right hand, and the Father says, until I. Until I say it's time to make things right. I am patient so that others would repent. And he says, you know, I mean, Jesus says, look, I don't even know when that time is. But God the Father is going to be doing this work. The Father chooses when. Until I. The last thing I want you to point out there is sit at my right hand. Until I put your enemies under your feet. Justice will prevail. Righteousness will rule. Okay, What Jesus says, um, don't fear the man Don't fear the one who can take your life. Fear the one that can take your life and your soul. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about every knee will bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord as he's sitting and ruling because he followed the will of the Father. Until I, until the Father says so, and then when he does, all this madness might make sense, but justice will prevail. You can't imagine heaven without justice. And that one sentence is what you and I are living for. That one sentence is enough for you and I to say, that's the promise I'm putting my faith in. That the Father says to the Son, sit at the right hand and rule. Sit there until the Father cleans this up and puts all the enemies underneath your footstool. This story, this Christmas story, does it sound a little bit like a rerun? Because if you look at the pattern of how God works in history, you can see this pattern because this is what it looks like to live by faith. Faith when not necessarily when things are going well, but when things are not going well. Look at, look at Rome. I mean, literally right now, the, it's not an empire. It's a small, over-congested town that people get annoyed visiting because it's hard to get around. It does not rule the Western Europeans. We we talk about Rome's majesty, but you have to go a couple thousand years to find out where that happened. Herod, we named our dogs after Herod. And the the heroine of the story is Mary, and there's been hundreds of millions of Marys. The the point is, is that real faith, real faith considers trust in God independent of circumstances. When all things are bad, God is still good. When evil wins, it's only temporary. And friends, here's my application. It is easier to have a strong faith than it is to fix a broken one. And you have to have faith in the right thing, in the promises of God. Look at, you go back, there's, uh, there's Herod, okay, you know, 4 BC or whatever you want to go. You go back to Persia, the great Persian Empire. Oh, no, wait another king who thinks he's literally a god and he wants to find a wife and so he kidnaps all the young virgins in the area, has them audition in a one-night date rape, and all the losers are banished to a harem and the winner becomes the queen. Meanwhile, his secretary of state is sticking up signs all over the country that says we're going to kill all the Jews on this date. And all of this is put The fate, right? This Holocaust is put in the faith of another humble little girl. And Haman, this evil man that wants to kill all the Jews, this other Hitler, right? Is will hang from his own gallows that he builds for his nemesis, but not until he first grovels and crawls to the feet of Queen Esther and begs her for mercy. This Jewish princess has his life in her hand. Because she had real faith. The real, the real kind. Okay? The, independent of circumstances and whether there was a Nebuchadnezzar or Artaxerxes or whoever the evil one was, she trusted in a God that manipulated those sorts of circumstances. And she didn't trust in the teachings of men or church history or church tradition. She believed in the promises of God. Nothing more, nothing less. You go back farther than that, there's another king. He's a Pharaoh and he thinks he's God. Because there rose a Pharaoh after 400 years, there rose a Pharaoh who knew not of Joseph. And you know what he said? Kill all the baby boys. Because he could. And that's the last you hear of the Egyptian Empire. Because God came to a humble man, you should see what God does with humble men and women. And He comes to a humble man, the most humble man in the world, that says, "Just be a glove. Let me play." He was a man who had faith—real faith, independent of circumstances, independent of pharaohs. When good or bad things were happening to good people everywhere, all the time, and evil looked like it would win, he had a faith. He didn't understand it. He never would understand it, Moses. But he just wanted to be used by God. We still name our daughters Esther. There's still men named Moses. God wins. Bet on God. Always bet on God. This is the faith that we need to have, you and I need to have. Friends, it's weird now. It's weird. Okay, when did was it even a year ago we had vocabulary words like uh, soft targets? (laughs) When maybe even our church is in, in some kind of physical or or legal problem just for preaching the Bible? These are strange times. I get concerned sometimes that because because it's so comfortable. I mean, I think right now it's between 73 and 73 and a half degrees in here. And some of you are comfortable with that. And some of you think it's cold, but you're wrong. (laughs) And and I'm in charge of the thermostat. (laughs) And in two weeks, we could be a persecuted people. And I wonder how many people would be part of the remnant. Our church sits on a giant cave. And maybe we would meet there in secret in the dark. It's my hope, this is honest, honestly, this is my hope, that if we did meet in the catacombs and the caves underneath this building and it, it was converted to something else and then we were a persecuted group, that we would miss a single person because you didn't make your commitment to Jesus Christ on conditions that all go well or that you would understand or that you would think that justice would rule in your lifetime. Real Christmas faith? It says, like the, the, the epistles, so many epistles in, come Lord Jesus. <laughs> come Lord Jesus. Only you could fix this. That's my prayer. It's easier to build a strong faith than it is to fix a broken one. You have to trust in the promises of God and His character, nothing else. Follow Him, no one else. Lord Jesus, we lift up this time to you and uh, the darkness, the darkness that continues to cycle through human history when it seems as though men go unchained in their lust for power and hate, and yet when evil seems to win. So when you shine brightest. And I, I, I'd ask that your spirit would convict us as to whether or not we have this real authentic remnant type faith that can persevere under persecution and suffering and lack of understanding. And God, I would ask that your spirit would cause us to long for that, to desire that, to not, to not have any priority but that priority, that we would persevere we would, we would trust you regardless, independent, because of who you are and the promises you've made. We pray this for your glory, not for ours. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about grace, visit our website at grace360.org.